0: Say, ladies and gentlemen, I have the great good fortune to bring you today. ladies and gentlemen, I have the great good fortune to bring you today, Mr. Edwin Enciso, longtime progressive activist democrat human rights activist just i i could go on and on and on but i'd much rather you and i both listen to what edwin had to say edwin welcome
1: rick so good to be here with you thanks so much
0: edwin i really value your insights into not just uh, the democratic party processes uh not just get out the vote but you know you you hit on so many important cylinders for our our time and uh First, before I ask you this this whole panoply of questions that I've got for you, what's what's on your mind right now? What are some of the issues that Edwin is focused on today? I find it
1: interesting the VP nomination. There's a, a lot of talk about uh, Susan Rice and Harris and and several others as the, the nominees, and it, it seems to me that a lot of the concerns or the way that we're looking at the VP nomination is not sort of helpful to to us. Uh, in understanding the process. You know, that's one of the things that, that comes to mind as as I look at, at this upcoming announcement. Um, also very interested in the, the NRA suit. You know, again, black women saving the world. Love, love, love the Tish James suit against the NRA. And she had more support in the left uh, going at vulnerable AGs that are not, you know, joining the suit, not also... You know, taking the same route. We really could flip the script and take a look at why, why aren't we tough on white-collar crime.
0: Um, so <laughs> those Edwin, are our Edwin, the script says white-collar crime is so difficult to pursue. On the other hand, let's, let's put a man in jail for life for stealing a friggin' rape. Exactly.
1: That's uh, exactly the, the kind of conversation that, that we need to get into. I think there's tremendous opportunity. The movement... Uh, in the streets has done so well to bring attention to the injustice one of the challenges we face in in the months before the election is you'll never have for the next two years another opportunity like this to take the power of the people and transform it into the people's representation it really breaks my heart when the corporation when wealthy people when racist neo Confederates believe more in participating in this republic than oppressed communities do, or especially, especially the organizers of oppressed communities, because when we don't participate, then those corporations, those wealthy people, those neo-confederates, they take power of government over oppressed people. You know, and we we have communities in Arizona, North Carolina, in Maine, in um, Georgia, Texas, Indiana, Montana. There are small pockets of immigrants, black folk that are suffering under the the state governments and the the politics that the worst of the the Trump support that uh, is holding power or is putting at risk, you know, is very much at risk of being controlled by uh, that kind of politics. If the left doesn't seize this time to organize and to help the people Make sure that their representation is in government
0: well evidently uh, having an increasing number of, of trillionaires is is better for society than improving the minimum wage and uh, <laughs> it really did, it beggars the imagination but there's so many poignant matters uh, that, that are really thrust forward. Uh, another question I want to ask you is you know many of us who are very concerned. About the anti science attitude of the current regime. Wonder why, when they are the simultaneously pushing forward for people to return to business, to return to schools, why is there no talk of funding for, let's say, increased cleaning capacity in schools, or funding for additional buses and drivers, or more personnel to improve? the, the health care and support in schools. There's no sense of money for class size reduction. Where's that part of the conversation? I hear them thumping the drum that, that it's important for kids to get back to school. Goodness knows it's important for children to learn. But at what price?
1: Yeah, we're, we're in a lot of trouble. When you look at the, the education budgets and the state budgets, you have states that are considering 20% across support reductions because State tax incomes have cratered due to the, the economic collapse. Um, so, part of the challenge that we face as the left is that what, there's nothing that wealthy people and neo Confederates and corporations would love for us to do during this time is to to only focus on demand tactics in the street. And to neglect electoral tactics. In fact, you know, if, if you would, their dream scenario would be for us to neglect the the all the electoral opportunities that we have, and to instead focus on on making demands. Because right now, we as a movement, we need to get better at electing people who are pro tax increases. We need to be unabashedly moving toward a 50% you know, tax rate on the wealthiest and with a long-term goal, I would say of returning back to the 70% rates that were at the forefront of driving the the growth and expansion of the largest middle-class post the new deal one and new deal two. You know, the, the challenge is that every time that in a state like Montana in a state like um main and every time there's a regressive pro trump politic person that takes over the power of government that legitimizes neo confederate politics it it entrenches this, and if you want to talk about uninspiring <laughs> you know uh, like you yeah, we we if we want a new generation of the left to rise up. And we want to hand them a movement with greater power and greater potential to transform things. You know, we, we really have to do a better job of helping to create opportunities for young, young people in the left to participate in this process, to find spaces where they can, they can see the connection between community organizing, you know, the people's community organizing, transferring that into the people's lawmaking, you know, of the legislative engagement side of things and that then contributing to the people's representation on the electoral side and one feeding into the other, feeding into the other in a cyclical fashion. Um, once you, they, you give young people the experience of seeing the connection and how that empowers their community. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, a silver bullet. It's not going to bring about, you know, utopia. But it, its these. What people need is they need progress to, to stay in it. Uh, and where you really kill movements is when we fail to to help leverage people power to help address the to remove people who are horrible. Like going back to to this uh, NRA push, you know there are some we neglect the sheriff's races on the left. You know there's so many counties where we can elect better better sheriffs, where we could be competitive. But we don't bother. So we allow a huge part of the county budget to go into security and people whose attitude is let's take money from schools and, and other important vital social services and move them into the militarization of the police. And those battles go uncontested. Same with too many mayorships end up being way too moderate when we could move things and and elect mayors that will elect police chiefs or select police chiefs that will do a better job of transforming police departments, all of these battles are are being fought right, right now. Same with attorneys general. You know, your state attorneys general has a huge influence over the county's attorneys general and so do your county attorneys general. If we neglect those battles then the prosecution of people in those counties in these states is what continues this sort of systemic oppression. And we can shift the conversation. Like, this is where, through democratic process, we're supposed to manage to the conversation on, why, why aren't we tough on white-collar crime? You can have an attorney general's election that is focused on that.
0: You bring up a very important point, and I think no discussion on electoral tactics can uh, <laughs> uh, can be complete without raising the question. And, and I know, brother, you have had the good fortune to, to stand up progressive values many times and, and debate with many people from the right and the far right and the far, far, far right, as they are with us every day. And I got to ask you this. How do you debate with a Trumpian character who'll say anything, who who is unconstrained by the facts, who's prepared to to say things like, "Poor Mr. Moderate Biden is against God, suburbia, and meat eating." I mean, what tactic can we use face with someone who's basically prepared to say anything? The,
1: the levels of of fascism that are just out in the open, really frightening. I remember uh, a debate on immigration reform in West Florida that we had um, back in 2013 with my sort of, well, my alter, my let's call him my nemesis in the area. He was, the I think, the 912 nine regional president. And, you know, they, Rob Laura brought him on to, to debate the issue. So we had uh, an academic sort of discussing immigration policy. Then we had me and then we had him. I think the academic was actually conservative, but still had a lot of um, pro immigration reform leaning information. And um, the thing is, is that for me, I don't want to accept his frame. I don't want to spend a lot of time trying to debate, um, you know, his reality, because you, you get sucked up in that and and it can just make you angry. But people get disconnected from that. So my approach was to, to claim the flag. You know, I, I went to American, uh, the, so uh, what's this called? indentured servitude. So that's an experience that all Americans, you know, are connected to and then leveraging that to, to show, look, you know, just like there was this one immigrant that had a small business, but in his home country had failed. And then he sought opportunity in this country and then he, he succeeded here. You know, that's, that, same thing is happening with these current waves of immigration. You know, this is all part of our story. You know, I'm talking about the history, but but laying a claim to to something that, that's intrinsically part of uh, America. I think that approach of that, and this is what the Civil Rights Movement did, it, it sought to say this belongs to us. You know, we've done this work. We deserve the, the same equality. You know, they they claim the flag for themselves. I think that that's that's our better path. I think that's going to draw the center to us more effectively than trying to debate reality with the bright parts and you know, Rush Limbaugh's of, of the, world the right.
0: The thing that concerns me, and I, and I agree with your tactic. I really do. It, it it is true to my own heart. But but I I have to ask this next question because this is the part that troubles me. Of course, we're going to stay on message. Of course, we're not going to accept their framing. That's, that's step one. But step two is, does it end up becoming, he's talking one conversation, we're talking a different conversation and there's, and there's, there's just a massive gap because there's no interaction. That's what troubles me.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was having this conversation earlier this morning and, I was talking about my admiration for the black community and there's many different spaces where there's discussion in the black community on politics that helps drive their anti-propaganda politic, you know, so high. So once upon a time, the the black community was mostly Republican, you know, post-Lincoln Reconstruction. And then as the Republican Party became more and more conservative and it started to go more and more corporate, um, especially post-suffrage and into the FDR New Deal that helped so many poor black folk rise economically, which then helped give rise to a black middle class, black churches, black business, small businesses, you know, and so forth, black media that you saw especially gain strength in the 50s, Um, this created a culture that that shifted, right? When Democrats started to support minority rights, uh, there were several um, civil rights bills through the, the 50s into the 60s. Then the black community shifted their support over to the Democratic Party So the the challenge is, you know, how do you help leverage that same sort of dynamic of strong discussion in black churches and black barbershops and so many like in black media where black uh, colleges where there's such a strong disciplined conversation around, you know, this is nonsense and this is clearly hurting our community. And, you know, what's our best move? And they're very, very pragmatic. I mean, they talk about, like, great lessons in real politics. The Black Congressional Cau- uh, Caucus internship program is the best internship program in politics. You know, I'd be desperate to get anyone um, into that program. But you you have that that kind of approach in that community. That's a great model to follow. I think that the more... Latinos embrace that approach, look to, to model that behavior, the stronger it will we'll be. Where we find a challenge is that the, the liberal white community is increasingly a minority in the white community. Um, and it worries me because, um, you know, the more, if we continue to lose more and more white people to this sort of Trump fascist, Breitbart politic it can it can nullify the gains that we're making in the minority communities um, as we saw in 2016 as we saw in 2000 so we we really need to take a look at and this is why I love coalition building and looking for majority power coalition building because ultimately my liberation is intricately tied to the to the liberation of and and to the the struggle of white progressives within their community, trying to fight with within white churches, within the, the corporate sector, within all of these spaces where there's so much power in the white community to look for ways in which my power can, can join with their power and help confront this other space. So we, when we we take the the approach that especially the civil rights movement took of looking for this broad coalition that was capable of of winning legislative ballot battles, um, I think that's that's where we we begin to come up with uh, the new tactics that will help us address this. I mean, it it begins. I think fundamentally we have to defeat defeat them. In the electoral space, and this is a, a lesson that we we forget from the FDR era. FDR, when he ran, there was no conversation. There was nothing about the New Deal too. You know, it was even, you know, a lot of his politics were were very sort of like his his conversation was very his policies anyway. What he talked about on the the trail were. And if you look at the Democratic Party platform of this first election, very sort of centrist. I mean, you know, people complain about Joe Biden, but I mean, that's kind of where he started out. It was that he brought in some of this, some of the brightest people of his time on the left. And they they were able to then move in and bring about a leftist approach to problem solving that then when they had their first initial victories, there was excitement, right? Instead of allowing us to, to become depressed about like that they hadn't gone far enough, they started working and building toward the success of their midterms. And when FDR got the, the, his policies vindicated by growth, like winning the midterms even larger, which is the opposite of normal, the normal history where, you know, the incumbent president would loses power in the midterms. That's what then projected them toward even more reform. And then when he won his second presidential victory, so by such large margin, that's what then allowed for the New Deal 2, which was more aggressive and far more expensive than New Deal 1. You know, all of this builds one into the other. And we forget that it was defeating these Regressive Hoover politics that defeat after defeat after defeat for literally almost 36 years in a row, with the exception of two years when Eisenhower was elected, that, that they were, um, you know, they, they had a, a Republican Congress. You know, and granted, Eisenhower held the White House for eight years. But when you look at that, that period, that's what, what helped shift Republicans from Hoover Republicans to Eisenhower Republicans. I don't see any evidence anywhere where we're going to be able to change the base of the Republican party, unless we defeat them just as the FDR coalition did. You defeat them for 36 years and then they become people who elect, who nominate Eisenhower rather than I nominate someone like Hoover and all the clowns that that came after Hoover um, against uh, Democrats.
0: I think we can take some solace that there has been some fractionating in the Republican fold. I, yeah. I'm happy to know that there's a friction between Florida Trumpers and Florida Trumpers and that are ro- hooked to the president more directly. And, of course, there's the Lincoln Republicans uh, who are doing <laughs> the work that I would have thought that Democrats might do. But uh, let me ask you a, another Democrat strategy question. Are you on board with this? Let's just be quiet, let Trump screw up, and we'll laugh quietly in the corner and hope no one notices us. Do you think that's the best policy? Do you think there's something missing? Shouldn't the same kind of politics we're hearing from the Lincoln Republicans be coming out of something like a democratic party
1: yeah that that's that's some really like amazingly coincidental, so you know if if Biden did the same thing, the attacks would seem would would be called partisan, but when it's the Lincoln project, suddenly because it's Republicans, you know it has that much more organic traction on social media and on uh, corporate media. I I find that entire dynamic really, really interesting. The Biden campaign is is not how I would have run.
0: There is, Um, is there? If there actually is a Biden yeah. campaign. I, I, I never saw it. I, I've i heard that there might be one. I, you know, I think there may be maybe they're holding fire until like early November.
1: I mean, he definitely had the, the disadvantage in, in money that he's finally starting to reach parity with. So it's it's hard to, to run into this. And I'm hoping that the team that saw those victories on in South Carolina and then through Super Tuesday, I, I don't want to believe that they, you know, they've forgotten that and that they don't understand that I'm thinking that right now they're, they're hoping to, to leverage the the pandemic. And they it, it was really so horrible. I mean, it, in a situation like this, I don't think we've had a media environment like the pandemic before. It's really hard to break through with anything other than, you know, the, the, the pandemic. And when there's so many people already angry, there is a long-standing strategy where you don't pile on because the the risk is that if you jump in and politicize it, then you politicize the, the the pandemic and you destroy the the legitimacy of the arguments that the people in the media and and other people are making against Trump right now. So it's not like, quite frankly, there's even a a west wing episode that i was watching the other day on um you know nuclear explosion that or meltdown that a republican front runner was was had to help establish and you know they went quiet um so it's it's not that that that's not an unheard of strategy but what i i really would like to see cuz i we we're, we're going to have to the progressives are going to have to deal with this biden presidency but there's so much room in congressional battles, in Senate battles, in legislative battles to fight for all sorts of key leftist programs, Social Security, Medicare, I mean, healthcare, the environment. There's so much that is at stake that we could be a part of winning. And the more that we focus on being a part of winning those battles the more we get a seat at the table. And when you have that seat of the table, then you can shift things. You can make sure at least that things don't slide from the 1.7 trillion that uh, was proposed for the environment that they don't slide from uh, so many other, other issues on criminal justice reform on, on comprehensive immigration reform. And ultimately like that, that we don't even have a chance at if we don't get to 53 55 Senate seats. Um, the more that we get effective on the left at doing the kind of work that the Lincoln Project is doing, I don't think so much that it should be Biden doing that. I, what What makes me sad is like, why aren't we doing that? Where is the the leftist equivalent of the Lincoln Project that is putting together the creative attacks on uh, Senator Snow, on the Republican candidates in Montana, and I, I just. You know, I'll, I'll I'll leave you with this, this um, thing on that I'm doing in Minnesota. I'm, I'm working on a on a campaign with some young people who are are just amazing. Very much uh, on the left, I would say that probably most of them identify as, as socialists, and they're fighting for a, a candidate who is an old friend of mine, who's also very, very radical, um, also identifies as a socialist. And these are young people who, who I think met one another and really came together through a lot of the, the protests against the police. And they're, they're still very much involved in that, but they've, they've taken to this electoral campaign and they're really learning, you know, they, they have roles in communications, operations field, they're doing, you know, policy and, they're on fire and you, you see the work and how they're engaging the community. It's so authentic, they're doing such a good job. And when you have young people participate, they learn skills through project management and through sort of the, the Wellstone model of, of electoral organizing, that it's difficult to learn within like a street protest, which is critical. Like it's not, not that I don't love. I mean, I've, I've been to so many, but we, we need that sort of comprehensive tool set among young people so that they they know how to leverage the power and the skills that they're building in the streets, to leverage that in the, the Capitol House, in city council spaces, in school boardrooms. And then when they don't get the results that the people want in those spaces, they can go out into electoral space and win battles and make sure that the people's representation takes power.
0: Well, Edwin, thank you so very much. Uh, let me ask you one last question for people who want to get in touch with you to help to, to solicit your information, your insights. How can they get in touch with you?
1: The easiest way is my LinkedIn profile on uh, at Edwin NCISO, E M C I S O. I'd love to connect with you. I'm involved in all sorts of projects. Please uh, let me know what you're up to. would be very glad to collaborate. You Thank take you, care, buddy.
0: my brother. Thank you so much. Solidarity, brother. Thanks. Bye-bye.
2: Okay, Brooke, are you there? Can you hear me?
3: Okay, this is Nurse
2: Durb. Okay, this is Janine Mollock with the Justice Report. We've had a few technical difficulties tonight, and I do apologize. So I'm just going to go ahead with this. Looks like qualified immunity is back on the ironing board. Uh, federal judge, U.S. District Court Judge Carlton Reeves, according to Slate writer Marcus Stern, has basically uh, denounced the policy of qualified immunity. And Reeves is a black male judge, and he was appointed to the Southern District of Mississippi by President Obama in 2010. Now. Judge Reeves does a commentary in a case known as Jamison versus McClendon. And this was a decision he ended down two, on Tuesday. And he gave more than just, according to the slate writer, more than a history lesson. This, this commentary on the whole idea of qualified immunity is a, what the writer called, quote, a fiery protest against the injustices of racist law enforcement, end quote. Um, So this is an instance where he takes that commentary and then he combines it with really a a scholarly critique and he really denounces this, our legal system that, uh, you know, really does favor the police when they commit unconstitutional and really immoral acts uh, against uh, communities of color. So... Basically, we look at that, you know, the idea of qualified immunity is this idea that public service, service, excuse me, public servants, especially the police, uh, unless they are actually found guilty of criminal uh, misconduct, they can't really be civilly sued when they actually violate, not successfully, and when they violate your rights. And they get a certain amount of immunity because of the type of job they do, which, frankly, nothing in the Constitution actually justifies this. Qualified immunity is something that was a device that was actually created by the Supreme Court back in 1967. And so Judge Reeves looks at this, and he names the people, the men and women that have been killed by police officers, uh, including George Floyd, and the whole Black Lives Matter um, movement. And so, uh, you know, the facts in the Jameson case are pretty depressing, all right? There's a white Mississippi cop named Nick McClendon. He pulled over Clarence Jameson, who was a black man, and Mr. Jameson is driving a really new Mercedes convertible. And McClendon's excuse, Officer McClendon's excuse was that Jameson's temporary tag was, quote, folded up. And later on, Jameson's... Per- provided proof that wasn't the case, but that was the excuse. Then McClendon ran, Officer McClendon ran a background check, found no criminal history. He then asked Jameson if he could search the Mercedes, and he accused Jameson of carrying 10 kilograms of cocaine. Jameson initially refused the search, but then McClendon kept, Officer McClendon kept pressing, and basically Mr. Jameson acquiesced because he had been coerced by this police officer. So then Officer McClendon basically tore up his brand-new Mercedes for about two hours, found nothing. He really did destroy portions of the car, and allegedly there were thousands of dollars uh, worth of damage. Officer McClendon also brought in a drug-sniffing dog, found nothing. So Mr. Jameson sued the officer, claiming that his Fourth Amendment rights were violated. Now, there was a federal law, passed, shortly after the Civil War, this is builds up into this whole idea of qualified immunity, and it lets individuals sue state officers if they claim that their constitutional rights have been infringed upon. And this was a response to basically a lot of the violence right after you know, the Civil War and how Reconstruction had just come to nothing. But the Supreme Court really um, handicapped the law. They imposed what they call, quote, an extra textual requirement. And um, apparently what it is is the victim has to prove that an officer violated a clearly established right that's quote, beyond debate. So that means that a court previously found that a nearly identical offense violated the constitutional or constitutional right. And if you can't meet that burden, then the officer or the official receives qualified immunity, which is basically a, a shield against any sort of civil lawsuit. Well, so basically, as we've talked about qualified immunity before on this program, I did a show a couple, several weeks ago. If there's no case precedent that's identical to the new challenge, then there's no case. So Judge Reeves, you know, did rule that McClendon, Officer McClendon did violate Mr. Jameson's Fourth Amendment rights, but since there was no precedent, of an identical nature, um, you know, he really couldn't, you know, he said that Officer McClendon was entitled to qualified immunity. And Judge Rees said, you know, Officer McClendon, it's, it's obvious he unlawfully coerced Jamison to consent to the search, which that's where the Fourth Amendment violation occurred. But, again, the qualified immunity kicks in because, once again, there's no precedent. So that, quote, places the constitutional question beyond debate, end quote. And then that meant that McClendon received qualified immunity and, quote, Jameson's claim cannot proceed, end quote. And that's what it is. And, you know, Judge Reese was really irritated by this. Um, and he pointed out how the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals basically granted qualified immunity in another case to prison guards where the, the, the violation was so egregious it was just beyond belief. So basically what happened here, um, the Fifth Circuit granted qualified immunity to these prison guards, who get this, who, quote, an inmate in a frigid cell covered in feces, forcing him to sleep naked on the floor for six days because an inmate's right not to be locked in a feces-covered cell for six days was not, quote, clearly established, end quote. You can't make this stuff up. So then the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals cleared the way for these abuses. And you have to look at what is the demographic of the Fifth Circuit? Well, the Fifth Circuit, the judges cover basically three states, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. No shock there. Um, These are states that have horrible, horrible records on civil rights violations. And, you know, the Fifth Circuit really made it clear that even the most obviously abusive officer can and should be uh, and should receive shielding from from liability. And Reeves took James's ordeal and he put it in he put it in the context of this broader struggle that Black Americans and other communities of color go through all the time. And then his opinion included a list of Black lives that were lost to basically racist cops that murdered them, and, and so on. So basically Judge Reed's decision to quote Judge, Judge Reed, quote, Clarence Jameson wasn't jaywalking. That was Michael Brown. Quote, he wasn't outside playing with a toy gun. That was 12-year-old Tamir Rice. Quote, he didn't look like a suspicious person. That was Elijah McClain. Quote, he wasn't suspected of selling loose, untaxed cigarettes. That was Eric Gardner. Quote, he wasn't suspected of passing a counterfeit $20 bill. That was George Floyd. Quote, he didn't look like anyone suspected of a crime. That was Philando Castile and Tony McDade. End quote. And so on and so forth. And basically, Judge Reese's condemnation by basically saying their names was much needed. We need judges that will speak to this injustice, not merely the letter of the law blindly. And to quote Judge Reeves, he said, again, he said, quote, Thankfully, Jamison left to stop with his wife. Too many others have not. Tragically, thousands have died at the hands of law enforcement over the years, and the death toll continues to rise. Countless more have suffered from other forms of abuse and misconduct by police, end quote. And then Judge Reeves con- condemned qualified immunity itself. All right? He said, quote, the harm in this case to one man sheds light on the harm done to the nation by this manufactured doctrine, end quote. And it's true. And then Judge Reeves went on in his condemnation of qualified immunity. He explained that basically during Reconstruction, white Southerners, and that included what they called law enforcement back then, which were previously slave catchers, ironically, were allowed to torture and murder people that were formerly enslaved. Uh, And with impunity, so they could basically maintain a brutal, what he called a brutal racial caste. And to quote him again, he said, to to quote, to end this campaign of racial terror, Congress passed the Ku Klux Klan Act, the basis of civil rights suits like Jameson's, end quote. Um, And Jameson went on to establish federal courts, quote, promptly decided to place their hand on the scale for white supremacy, end quote. Speaking to the fact that the federal government really works to protect white supremacy at the expense of communities of color, continues on. And the Supreme Court made it literally impossible to hold police accountable because of this qualified immunity doctrine. Um, And so... You know, Reeves also noted when he talked about qualified immunity decisions, and this is a judge, quote, our courts have shielded a police officer who shot a child while the officer was attempting to shoot the family dog. Prison guards who first a prisoners to sleep in cells covered in feces for days. Police officers who stole over 225,000 worth of property. A deputy who body slammed a woman after she simply ignored the deputy's command and walked away. An officer who seriously burned a women, woman after detonating a flashbang device in the bedroom where she was sleeping. An officer who deployed a dog against a suspect who claimed that he surrendered by raising his hands in the air. And an officer who shot an unarmed woman eight times after she threw a knife and glass at a police dog that was attacking her brother, end quote. And that's from Judge Reese from his opinion. Look, these, just, these injustices are not anomalies, but major components, in my opinion, of structural racism. This is part of the federal judiciary's dispiriting history of, you know, slamming Chekhov's courthouse doors, especially on black Americans. Now, the Supreme Court has corrected some past judicial crimes. You know, we have Brown versus the Board of Education that basically got rid of the separate the equal doctrine in our schools. But what we really have to look at, you know, are these judges that keep upholding white supremacy, We need to say their names, not just the names of the victims, but say the names of the judges responsible for maintaining this racist system. Say their names. The judges of the, of the fifth US Circuit Court of Appeal, the judges who have either upheld the idea of qualified immunity to the most abusive police and those who have acquiesced and remained silent to this injustice. We know the names of those we have lost to state-sanctioned police murders of black people, whether it be Michael Brown, Samir Rice, George Floyd, et cetera. Now, I'm going to say the names of those who provided a get-out-of-jail-free card to police. Say their names and condemn these judges who despise human rights. Say their names. Fifth Circuit Justices. Chief Judge Priscilla R. Owen, Judge Thomas R. Thomas M. Reveley. Judge Carolyn Deneen King. Judge E. Grady Jolly. Judge Patrick E. Higginbotham. Judge W. Eugene Davis. Judge Edith H. Jones. Judge Jerry E. Smith. Judge John M. Duhay Jr. Judge Jack Jock. L. Wiener Jr., Judge Raisa H. Barksdale, Judge Fortunato P. Benavides, Judge Carly Stewart, Judge James L. Dennis, Judge Edith Brown Clement, Judge Jennifer Walker Elrod, Judge Leslie H. Southwood, Judge Katharina Haynes, Judge James E. Graves, Jr., Judge Stephen A. Higginson, Judge Greg J. Costa, Judge Don R. Willard, Judge James C. Ho, Judge Stewart, Kyle Duncan, Judge Kurt D. Engelhardt, Judge Andrew S. Oldham, and Judge Corey T. Wilson. Now, this is what we have to do, all right? Um, right, This is something that we have this doctrine of qualified immunity and it lets the cops get away with what can only be called torture. There's no other way to put it. And we have a fifth circuit court that intends to maintain the whole idea of qualified immunity and this is something that it it has no justification in constitutional law even though many of these judges might claim to be conservatives you know the explanation of qualified immunity again it was a doctrine created by the supreme court that's no basis in constitutional law and writing from the appeal amir h ali and emily clark They explained how the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, invented qualified immunity in 67. It was supposed to be a modest protection for public officials who acted in good faith. But then, 15 years later, the case of Harlow v. Fitzgerald changed everything. And then, that's when the SCOTUS decided that officials, that means cops, who violate your rights maliciously, will be immune unless the victim can show that his or her right was, quote, clearly established. And to show that it's clearly established, the victim has to point to precedent, a previously decided case that involves the same specific context and particular conduct. There's no way you can do that. There was one exception carved by the Supreme Court in Hope v. E. Peltzer. This was where corrections officers disciplined a prisoner and handcuffed into a hitching post for seven hours, hands above shoulders, shirtless in the summer sun, A guard tossed to the prisoner, gave water to a guard dog in plain sight. Uh, There was no prior case that confronted similar facts, but the Supreme Court ruled that the cruelty was so obvious, they should have had fair warning. Now, you would think that that would be enough to put all these cops on notice, but it wasn't. All it really did was lower the bar so that when they are considering whether a victim civil rights have been violated by their fellow cops, they're just going to look at that and go, well, it wasn't obvious, so we can get away with it. This is how evil this has become. And so, you know, we live in an age of inherent contempt for the very concept of equal justice before the law and rule of law in general. This contempt comes not only from the KKK halls, but from the chambers of the U.S. Supreme Court. When conservative jurists claim that their version of constitutional law is originalist or strict constructionist, and they rail against alleged legislating from the bench, they're merely demonstrating their hypocrisy. Conservative jurists like the late Antonin Scalia through John Roberts progressing Brett Kavanaugh cannot contain their mammoth hypocrisy as they chastise any sort of political ruling. All rulings are political, when pro-slavery conservatives pushed to maintain their unjust status as white slave owners and the Supreme Court accommodated them with the Dred Scott decision, that was political. Consider the facts as understood by the Supreme Court Chief Justice of the day, Roger B. Taney. When they looked at Dred Scott, who was a former slave, suing for his freedom, basically what Taney did he read the official opinion, and he dismissed Dred Scott's suit for freedom, because at the time that the Constitution was adopted, blacks were not considered to be citizens. So, since Dred Scott wasn't a citizen, he had no right to sue in court. And then, residents in Wisconsin Territory had no effect because the Missouri Compromise was invalid. Congress didn't have powers to pass laws that limited slavery. So. Here's the thing. Nowhere does any member, and that's just a prime example, nowhere does any member of the Supreme Court speak to the idea that African Americans or any person of color are human beings and, as such, entitled to the same human rights as anyone else. Judge Taney was merely concerned with maintaining property rights. Furthermore, Judge Taney used the technician's argument, justifying that vile action with what has been called the letter of the law. The idea that the rule of law should reflect actual justice is irrelevant to Taney and conservative justices of the 21st century as well. Taney's textual or originalist argument is also incorrect, as it's based on a false premise. Where the Constitution says, for instance, no cruel or unusual punishment, that should have applied to slavery. Period. The fact, citizenship status, is irrelevant. Not to mention the fact that the Bill of Rights itself doesn't speak to citizens. It speaks to persons. So just on the facts alone, Judge Taney was wrong. You know, it isn't a conservative's hate politicizing the courts. In fact, they love that endeavor. As long as the political decisions benefit them and uphold the forces of structural racism and the many other forms of structural inequities baked into our justice system, Look, the problem with our court system isn't politicization, politicization of judges. The problem is the true nature of injustice. Conservative jurists and conservatives in general, in my opinion, they love to jerry rig the letter of the law in order to boost and support these very structural inequities I'm speaking of. So you see, conservatives that worship the false idol of originalism, they only do so because of these preordained structural inequities. At least progressive judges are honest about their politicization. The history of the United States is in constant flux between those forces which idealize overall the mythology of our nation and those who demand the truth. Our most flagrant myth is the one we call rule of law. Since our beginnings, our earliest beginnings, the white Christian majority has demanded a mythology which suppresses any of the pesky details that document every grievous injustice dished out to racial, religious, and gender minorities. This majority likes their mythology sanitized and whitewashed to a level that makes the Brady Bunch look like perverts. The Supreme Court and the federal courts are no different. These judges should not be viewed as the high priest safeguarding the false idol of originalist doctrine. Judges should be seeking justice no matter what passes for established precedent. Otherwise, it's not justice. It's just a lie. And that's my report. You there, Brett? I think we're still having a few technical difficulties, so I'm going to keep talking for a few more minutes. There was a lot of information to throw at everybody. And I want to say that we have been faced with a lot of arguments that really appeal to the nitty-gritty details of a situation and don't really deal with the original premise and, the, once again, and the idea but you need to start with an original idea. Okay. So, once again, we need to be demand- demanding more. The law belongs to all of us, not merely the high priest. And um, I wish you
3: all well. Janine, can Texas you hear me program. now? Yes, I can. We Yay! Have today. Fabulous. I I hope that my mic was live in between the transition.
0: If it wasn't,
3: I'll see if I can do an edit um, before it goes out as a pod or as it goes out as a pod. Um, but I can well, hear you. You just could not hear me. I want to tell okay. you that was a fabulous report. I mean, I'm just... Oh. Uh, it, it... the. Every week I learn something, but especially this week, I feel like, uh, especially with the following through with the qualified immunity and all the stuff that is happening now, this is just such important information. I'm so glad we've got you um, covering this date oh. every week.
2: Thank you. All
3: right. it, it, it's I consider it a privilege to cover it. Yes, yes. I feel the same way. It is, a, it is a privilege to do the show with you and Rick. And um, Mm -hmm. Evelyn was wonderful tonight with with his piece. And, um, you know, we'll do it all again next week. We'll also hear you (laughs) on Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern on the Environmental Justice Report. And then we've got Mm -hmm. the COVID report Wednesday at 6 p.m. And somewhere in there, I'm going to do a, I'm going to finish up this uh, Russiagate piece as we've got new stuff, uh, breaking news that's happening all over the place. So it's going to be a busy week for PNN. And I hope our listeners stick with us and, you know, sign up for the pod so that you get all of these great extra um, pieces, parts. I'm also doing just one other show note. I'm doing a um, – I'm looking at restream to get the live stream out to more uh, outlets while, we, uh, while we're on live and that will also help with the syndication uh, as a podcast. So we continue to grow, and things are very exciting. Yay! All right. Yay. Well, I will talk all to right. you
2: later. Have a great week. Super duper.
3: You too. So thank you, Janine. Thank you, Edwin. Thank you, Rich Spizak. Amazing work from all. We will uh, all see you guys next week. And uh, I'm going to leave you with Emma uh, Goldman. Wow, well, maybe I'm not. That was terrible. Here's something else.